Welcome to episode four of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, the disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. How's everyone today? Hi, how are you? Very good. Very good to be back. I quite look forward to these, I have to say. You know, at first I thought it would be fun, but it's much more than that. It's quite stimulating. It is, isn't it? And you have to sort of get yourself prepared and then it never goes quite where you expect it to. Well, isn't that the thing? I mean, it takes me back to tutorials a very long time ago where you just talk a lot without knowing very much. <laughs> yes. I've made a career for 40 years. Doing <laughs> yes. that. The key, isn't it? It's a sort of, yeah. yeah. Catch me as long as you know just thing. a few things to hang your hook on, that's yeah, it, exactly. hang your hat on. And also there's that kind of little things, isn't it, at the edge of the main narrative that interests you and that catch your... Well, right. historians always do that. But the stuff you take away, I mean, you know, the time Kat told us about the bones of Waterloo being dug up, that's so fascinating yeah. for fertiliser. Yeah. You know, I just, things you just have no idea about. Yeah, well, it's a great source of intel for murder weapons for future novels. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think there's quite a lot of those in the history. Has there ever been a thing. better murder weapon than the Agatha Christie's icicle that killed someone? Do you remember that one? That was a good yeah. one. Do you remember the Roald Dahl one with the frozen leg of lamb? The, the, <laughs> the murderer feeds the detective. So he feeds good. Them the murder weapon. Yes, oh, that's that very is good. good. That's good, isn't it? That's very, very good. Good Norwegian. Mm. Now, I notice that you're wearing something new today, Richard. I think yes, we should just explain this. <laughs> well, no, I'm wearing a bow tie because since I've sort of hung up my dog collar, I felt that my neck is a little underdressed. And I don't like neckties, but I do like bow ties. So I started wearing them, but literally strangers have come up to me and started going, ooh, Esther. You know, like Cyril Fletcher, which is a reference that very few will get, but in the 1970s, who, do you remember him? I do. He sat there... And he sort of pontificated in a big chair. But the, the whole bow tie thing, I looked up about bow ties today because I'm going to be speaking about ties. And this man called Warren Sinjin wrote in the New York Times about 17 years ago, bow ties are worn by magicians, country doctors, lawyers and professors, and by people hoping to look like the above. <laughs> but perhaps most of all, wearing a bow tie is a way of broadcasting an aggressive lack of concern for what other people think. Maybe I need a rethink. <laughs> Maybe a cravat. But actually, they were very practical. If I may, I, may I? I think we should just start because yeah, you've already launched I, into it. So your first topic, which is the tie. The tie. So ties. There are ancient examples of ties, which were probably badges of great favor, military favor. So the seven and a half thousand Chinese soldiers who were unearthed. They had the, a special mark of something around their neck. Trajan's column, for instance, the soldiers there are wearing what we would consider something like a tie. Like but, a medal or something? Well, it's, it... no, it's it's a piece of fabric. That does, is, it, does it say... I think it's saying highly favoured soldiers. This is what we think. Mm. Um, and actually, the, the most broad route for ties goes back to the early 17th century when Croatian mercenaries serving Louis XIV and the French generally in the Thirty Years' War, they wore strips of fabric around their neck, often given as favours by their wives or girlfriends to uh, remember them by when they were risking their lives in battle. And the word for these Croatian mercenaries was the cravata. So we get the cravat, the French cravat, Louis XIV thought they were very smart and started wearing them. 
And then they were brought back to England. Charles II was in exile in the 1650s and spent time with his cousin, Louis XIV. And when he came back in the Restoration in 1660, he came with an early forebear, really, of the tie. A sort of bow tie? Or a... No, bow ties are, are something that came much later, actually probably because the Industrial Revolution, people didn't want a tie getting caught in the machinery. Oh. Um, and it's, there's always been an element of intellectualism to a tie, so you get that. I'll give you a small credit there. But also a practicality of profession. So, for instance, paediatricians have often worn bow ties because they don't want children yanking them. But of course, think of those machines in the Industrial Revolution. You didn't want your tie getting caught up in the cogs. No. It happened to a monk I knew once. His scapula got caught in the cogs of the hydroelectric turbine they had in their monastery. I mean, how did that go? Not well. <laughs> it didn't sound as though. Yeah, you wouldn't remember it if it had gone but well. When did they become sort of insignia of affiliation, like the regimental tie or the old school tie? Well, I don't know. I had a very nasty experience with uh, those ties. Back in 2005, I was giving a talk. I was very early in my time as a historian talking at literary festivals. And I went to one in Norwich in one of those big halls there. And I pitched up and was very surprised to see everyone in the hall wearing the same tie. Uh And I was giving a talk on the Battle of Blenheim. But my history was a very broad and general. It's about people. And I said to the host, oh, how interesting. Everyone's got the same tie. And he said, well, you're addressing the Battlefield Association of Great Britain. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to ask about musket gauges and cannon and all that sort of thing. And I said, well, how long have I got to talk for? And he said, well, if you do 45 minutes, there'll be 45 minutes for questions. So I spoke for an hour and a half and there were no questions. Oh, well done. (laughs) But did you know enough about... I knew enough about the battle to keep going, but not enough about the specifics of gunnery. And that's what so they were into. That's what they had come to hear. So they had a very boring hour and a half. I saw the other day that if you get a PhD in Finland, you get a special hat and a sword. A sword. I know. I'm so jealous. I sort of almost wish I'd done my PhD in Finland because they get a sword. I don't know why they get a sword. In Norway, you just Apparently get a... it's to symbolise that you're defending truth. Yes, because oh. we do say they're, they're what's called a viva here. So when you have finished your PhD and you have a sort of oral exam, essentially, that's called a defence, yeah. at least in Scandinavian countries, but, but I, not I, a literal defence. We think of the tie nowadays, whether it's a bow tie or a conventional tie, just a sort of fitting in, I think. It's it's a convention to wear a tie. But it used to be an art. And the man who comes to mind most in this is Beau Brummel, the great dandy of early 19th century England, who uh, would attract crowds to watch him. He would take five hours to get dressed. He was the epitome of style. And of those five hours, he'd devote two hours to getting his tie right. And people would come to watch him putting his tie on for two hours. Obviously, a rather difficult man to love, Beau Brummel, because of the vanity and because of the extravagance. But I think his palette and his what he wanted to work with wasn't nearly as ostentatious as people would have thought. Yeah, he wasn't bling, was he? Really the opposite of bling. Yeah. I mean, he's quite bonkers. By the end, he, he died of insanity he in France. He was penniless, wasn't he? He was penniless. He was a great favourite of the Prince Regent, but they fell out. It looks like the Prince Regent got rather jealous of him, but there was this sort of cataclysmic moment, how to throw away your royal favour, when the Prince Regent was staring at Beau Brummel, trying to make him feel very uncomfortable because he'd upset him. And Beau Brummel turned to the man to the right of the Prince Regent and said, who's your fat friend? And that was the end of that. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> no OBE for him no. after that. But I, anyway, Beau Brummel, 
spent the equivalent of £800 a year on his appearance. This is at a time when a proper craftsman, tradesman, would be on a pound a week and bankrupted himself. He went to, he got sucked up into the world of gambling and high expenditure. He said that people, if you really wanted a sheen on your boots, you should polish them in champagne. Right. Yeah. Um, but he started off as an Etonian and showed a flourish. The Etonians had a white cravat as part of their uniform. And he adapted that in something rather more flamboyant with a gold stud in it. And that was the start of a, a dandy career. But he wasn't a peacock, was he? I mean, he dressed actually in black and white, didn't he? And yeah. It, was very, it wasn't jazz hands. It was just beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. Absolutely right. And perfectly fitting. Yeah. And he didn't like frivolities. So, for instance, he went against the convention of breeches and went for long trousers. Everything had to be made perfectly and look like a gentleman, I suppose, in his view. I think we've got a good fact coming at us over here. Richard asked about affiliation. It actually was in 1880 that the idea of wearing a tie to show one's affiliation developed. The first school tie was fashioned when a member of Oxford University's rowing club removed the ribbons from his boater hat and tied them four in hand and the trend caught on. So 1880, Richard. The wearing your colours is actually a long military history, isn't it, Charles? Maybe this is a sort of pedestrianised version of wearing your colours. Yes, military colours, or, or at least a symbol that you're on the same side, was a very good idea. I can't remember, one of the major battles of the English Civil War, both sides chose the same token, <laughs> which is really bad luck, because of course they're all speaking English anyway, and then they're all wearing the same insignia to show that which side they're on that day. I've often wondered about yeah. that, about, you know, in battle, especially yeah. in hand-to-hand battle. How do you know who's friend and who's foe? I sh- this, yeah. comes up, yeah, this comes up in Viking Age as well, if you have the battles, because I've, I've had this a lot from... Uh, People do TV programs and films and movies, and they sort of they use us as consultants and saying, "Well, we've got to design the Vikings different from the Saxons." And so, what did the Vikings look like? And actually, we don't know. And in reality, they probably looked pretty much exactly the same. Enormous horned helmets, cat. Come on. Well, yeah. Sorry, apart from the horned helmets, but you know, when the horns have broken off in battle, did they actually have horned helmets? No evidence whatsoever. That's all comes from um, Wagner's opera. Um, That's that's the costume that was made for. Uh, the ring, that's where that first time that the horned helmet comes up. So it's, it's completely created. But shields, though. So one of the things we think that they used was actually different coloured shields because you can paint them and that yeah. shows quite clearly. And the crested tie is a thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. But the the real thing with the tie, I think Oscar Wilde has the the best line on ties, which is a well-tied tie is the first serious step in life. If you think about back in his time, you know, everyone wore a tie the whole time. I mean, I know you wear a bow tie. I and do I know a self-tied a, bow tie. Well, now you're just belittling me because it's very non-you, isn't it, to have a pre-tied tie, which is what I do. I cannot, I have no mathematical ability or scientific or spatial awareness. Can you tie a shoelace? I can do that. It's that. Is it? It's that. Okay. I'll show you if you like. Practice sessions. But even my shoelaces are a bit lopsided. I, I, it's just That's why you brain. haven't got shoelaces on these. I know. Slip on, slip on to my friend. <laughs> when do you wear it? Do you, do you wear a tie, Charles? Very, very rarely. And when I do, I quite like it. I've got so many ties. You know, I've got seven children, so I've been given a lot of ties in my time. But the point is that I don't think about ties. But when I wear them, I think, oh, that's a really nice thing. Yeah. Bow ties are always the enemy, really, because of this feeling of inadequacy that I can't do it. 
Because actually that's part of the aspect of the bow tie being an intellectual's mode of neckwear is the fact that they're not straightforward. But, so, so no, no, but that's why part of the intellectual side goes with wearing a bow tie. But that's not, I'll tell you what, it is quicker to tie a bow tie than to clip on a bow tie and easier. I don't clip on, I have a thing that clips around so clip on same thing no no, no it's not no there are three basic styles of bow tie the one you're wearing which has been done beautifully the one i cheat with which has a hook around the side but you still get the thing going around the neck yeah, but it's still and a, a clip hook. on just goes on the front yeah no it's still a clip isn't it this could get really serious couldn't it <laughs> also I, was, I i know what to get you for your next birthday Richard, and that is a wooden bow tie. They're apparently all the rage in North America. A wooden bow tie? Oh, wow. Yeah, they are literally a bow tie made of wood. Why would you have a That's bow tie made of wood? Uh, it's example. something to do with using sustainable whatevers. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, I won't be getting you one then. <laughs> Charles doesn't like to tie a tie, but do you know how many ways there are to do so? 85. Uh, you weren't supposed to answer that because you had it in front of you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Shut up. Did you? No, I looked that up myself. <laughs> 85 ways of time. I haven't got it for my research. It's right, it's right there in the ephemera section. That oh, is, damn. I, I dispute that figure. That's a made-up figure. Two Cambridge physicists oh. use the mathematical formulation to determine there are 85 ways to tie a tie. Wow. Experts, what are they? Do you mean as in to make it look the same, but to do it in a different I mean, don't ask complex questions, Kat, <laughs> I wouldn't Sorry. be able to do that. Too much. I'm going to leave that. <laughs> but so one question, though, why, why have they really always been just for men, ties and bow ties as well? What, yeah. At what point does it become a male thing? I mean, obviously... Well, fashion-wise, and, and I wouldn't have known this except being set this uh, task for today, they became quite a big thing for women in America and Europe in the 80s, including bow ties. I don't know. If, is there a sort of phallic element to a tie? I don't know. Thing hanging down in front, <laughs> advertising your prestige. Yes. There is something, isn't there? I don't know. I, I, I imagine there's something. they're all the same size and the same shapes. <laughs> I'm an old Antonian, or are you just pleased to see me? <laughs> People say, why do clergy wear black? Because it's not always been the case. Well, the reason is, is that black cloth, because it was so difficult to dye deeply and permanently was a sign of wealth and prestige oh. and the clergy dressed in the clothes of the prestigious so it's not a kind of humble thing or a solemn thing it's actually rather like Beau Brummel a display of taste and discrimination and mm. how fascinating so we've talked a lot about different types of, of ties and some of the early origins but in terms of what we think of as normal ties today the modern tie how far back does that go? When when was that created or invented? Well, it's only in the last, actually less than 100 years. In, in 1926, really, a, a man called Jesse Langdorf who painted the new technique, which involved sewing a tie into three segments. You know, before that, a tie had been held together with various sort of pins and trinkets. So, yeah, we, we have a Jesse Langsdorf to thank for what we consider the normal regular tie today. That was really... Very fascinating. But what was your favourite fact, Charles, of all your research? My favourite fact was in 1886, a tobacco heir in America called Pierre Loillard IV brought the black tie into fashion and he first wore it in Tuxedo Park. Oh, really? Yeah. So that I thought was really fascinating. So the tux? The tux comes from his rather huge family home and was original and best it wasn't a European. it was something he wanted to wear and he tried it and it became an instant hit well so smart isn't it mm. fascinating thanks so much for that charles so richard yes 
you're probably really well aware that you're a bit behind on the scorecard. Oh, uh, just a you number. Know, I don't want to sort of remind you, but Thank just, you. just to sort of mention it. But that could well change because I also really like your topic this week that you've been researching, which yes. is motorway services. Motorway services. One of the great, great inventions of civilization. Absolutely. They're a recent thing. In this country, they really began with the opening of the M1, which was 1958-59. Did you know that there's at the first petrol station was a pharmacist shop in Germany, a little town in Germany, and Ms. Benz drove her car to the pharmacist and got the chap to fill it up with whatever you filled up a car with in those days. And that there's a blue plaque now saying this was the first ever petrol station. What, so before you would have it at home, would you? Is no, that... you would go to the general store and they'd have jerry cans, but they kept blowing up. And I mean, so <laughs> in the end, so, the, the, so they started moving petrol stations out of town because obviously the danger of, you know, oh, yes. before they could handle flammable materials. It's like carefully. a bathhouse in a Roman villa. Yeah. Keep it away from the villa. Yeah. So that was happening around 1900, 1920s. And then there was a guy in America. He worked for on the highways department and he noticed a family having a picnic on an old tree stump next to a highway because more and more people were beginning to take to the road. But they could, there was nowhere for them to sit. So they were sitting kind of cross-legged on the, in the dirt. And he thought, well, that's a bit mad. So he got his guys, while they were building fences, to knock out some tables and chairs and just put them up alongside the highway. And that was the beginning of people having a sort of rest stop where they could vittle themselves while in transit. And the service stations were developed out of that. But it's particularly interesting in Britain so the M1 came along, and because that was a planned piece of engineering, they rolled in everything they needed to make that work. So somewhere where you could get your car fixed, because they broke down all the time, somewhere where you could refuel, because obviously you needed to do that, and somewhere you could go for a pee, because obviously you needed to do that. But there was a cultural battle, actually, because there were two schools of thought. One was that the service station should provide for the needs of lorry drivers and working people. And the other one was that the service station should provide for the needs of upper-class people who were travelling and looking for comfort. And the two examples that were in the original plan and still survive today was Watford Gap, Blue Boar Services on the M1, which was built for lorry drivers, and it was a sort of pit stop for people who were working, and Newport Pagnell, where you were met by uniformed hostesses who would take your hat and your coat and seat you at a cocktail bar and bring you a fillet steak for 12 and 6. Oh, my goodness. So it was considered very smart. And that was run by, well, partly by the Forte group. Mm. And the Blue Boar at Watford Gap was run by a local guy who fixed cars for a living. So there was these, these two ideas about what the service station should be. And the Blue Boar model, you will not be surprised to hear, rather prevailed. Yes. It should bring back the other ones as well. Well, of course, in some countries, in France, you can eat, perhaps not so much true now, but in the 80s, you could certainly stop mm. at a motorway services and eat exceptionally well. Well, there are a couple of really good ones in England now. Yes. The one at Gloucester, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Gloucester services and Tibet. Yeah, yeah, they're seriously good. I mean, they're as good as anything France can throw you. You would sort of go there, actually, yes. just for, for the food, the proper farm shops. and. Well, it's interesting. I think what's happened is that they've never settled that question about what do people want from their motorway services some people want you know just a pit stop and that's the standard mm. have you noticed how i mean that that's franchised now so you will have more and more places a marks and spencer selling yes. not just two pints of milk but marks and spe- m&s double <laughs> pints of milk you know? yes so they're catering for a wider range of customer than you might think they're notorious of course for being places where you pay a significant premium 
stopping there. They're money earners, but then they mm. they are legally obliged to provide certain services. They have to pay for the construction, not just of the service station, but also the on-ramp and the off-ramp and the signage and everything. And they have to provide certain facilities and you know, hot food until 10 at night, somewhere to stop. You can pee for free. But it is a very mixed experience. I like the one, like Leicester Forest East is one of my favourites. Oh, I haven't been to that one. Oh, well, we used to, when we were kids, we had, my parents had friends with three boys of the age of me and my brothers who lived at Chesterfield. So we used to do a handover at Leicester Forest East (laughs) services. So it was a gateway to holiday time for me. And they were, you know, modernist architecture. They were made with cutting edge materials and they were designed to express that belief in modernity, that belief in connectivity, that belief in technology. It's perhaps harder to find much to advertise those values now. Did we ever eat there or was it just oh, a... yeah. Well, all I wanted when I was eight was a beef burger, really. Yes. <laughs> so if there was a wimpy or something, hurrah. Wimpy, yes. You know why T-Bay happened? No. Well, it was when the M6 went north. It's near Carlisle, as you know. When it went that far north, they compulsory purchased the land of the farm. I think it was called Turner. Perhaps a disembodied voice can look up, but it was Turner's farm. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Turner decided to run their own service station and provide for it out of their own agricultural enterprise. Yeah. It was actually John and Barbara Dunning rather than Turner. There's a famous story, I'm not sure if it's true, that on the A38 which goes past Buckfast Abbey in Devonshire. The little chef was owned by the monks of Buckfast Abbey and they grew <laughs> fat and sleek on the proceeds <laughs> from it, I don't know. Have you ever bumped into friends in a service station? I have, yes. It is extraordinary. You think of the chances. I once bumped into, at the time, one of my greatest friends filling up with petrol at the next door pump and you just think, what are the chances of that? You know, he lived in Scotland, I lived in London. Just so bizarre. Can I throw it internationally? I mean... Yeah. When you look at the British service station, I think apart from the two exceptions that we touched on, they're very functional and low on joy. But is that a common denominator generally? Germany was interesting because the, the, the autobahns, which were built in by the time of the Third Reich, they built the sort of rest stops into that. But the rest stops were designed specifically to express the beauty of a echt Deutsch landscape. Mm-hmm. So you would stop at the top of a mountain and there would be a lovely view. And there's a lovely account of one of the German builders of the Autobahn who built this thing, liking people to just put their cars into neutral and coast down the hill to enjoy (laughs) the beauties of the landscape, which of course expressed certain values about land and nationality and ethnicity, of course. So they can play their part in quite sinister narratives sometimes. When I was a kid, I grew up near Charles, Northamptonshire, the pubs all shut at 10.30, we used to go to Rotherstorp service station on the M1 just by Northampton and stay up excitingly late having instant coffee. We, when I was touring with the Style Council, we stopped at the service station because that's another thing you always see at service station is bands, touring yes. bands. And we left our keyboard player, Mick Talbot, and drove away and left him abandoned. <laughs> um, so he was just surrounded by people who are Style Council fans trying to get his autograph. There's absolutely nowhere he could go or nothing he could do. <laughs> and in the end, he got a taxi to drive him all the way back to London. He was furious. You left him behind by accident? Yeah, we did. It was one of those things we just like inadequate Kevin, head alone. <laughs> no, he was a very nice fellow. Did you find any particularly interesting facts about service stations when you did your research? Well, there are two okay. that I particularly... One is which service station is the most poorly served for urinals? In the UK network. I don't think I know that. <laughs> South Mims. No, South Mims, you can pee to your heart's delight. <laughs> 
It's Peas Pottage on the A23. So That's very good. <laughs> if, don't, if you're desperate, don't stop at Peas Pottage. And the other one is, and it's to do with bands, is that so many bands stopped at Blue Boar Services on the M1. It was a thing that Jimi Hendrix thought it was a club and kept being asked to be taken to the Blue Boar because he thought that's where all the bands hung out. But it wasn't, it was a service. Excellent. Brilliant, love that. That's wonderful. Thanks so much, Richard. Well, it's over to you. Then. It yes, is over to me now. Yeah, so that treadmill... For the history of the treadmill. This has been a really interesting one, actually. We do know that they go back to, well, sort of early versions to the Romans using human-powered wheels. You actually have a large wheel connected to a crane, so they're not for exercise, they're for moving things. And then you go into the use of animals quite commonly. So again, not really treadmills so So it's for power. That's how they started. Yeah, so it starts with essentially using that power of the wheel to actually do something useful. Medieval masons used to put oxen, didn't they, and turn a wheel and that would yes, wash so stone up. So exactly. Like, so yeah. a horse whim is the sort of where you have, uh, or you can use an oxen, you can use whatever animal really, to move move a sort of large wheel around. They go back definitely to ancient Greece to sort of 300 BC, as far as we know, probably older than that, but that's what, yeah. as far as we know. And then, yeah, so for anything from milling grain and, and all useful things, but this I didn't know. Again, we're sort of on animals rather than humans, but same sort of concepts. In 1680, a person that you know something about, I know, Charles, invented the first horse boat. That Prince used Rupert. To... Yes. Prince well Rupert. Yeah. Very he good. just pops up all the time. He's, yeah. He is the universal man. So he invented a boat that used a horsewhip mechanism to tow ships in the Royal Navy. So they could actually tow the heaviest ships by using these horses dragging this wheel around. I don't understand. From them. on land? No, on the boat. Same sort of mechanism that you'd use for grinding something, a mill or whatever. The horse is on the boat and moves it around. By 1819, you had all these horse boats operated between Manhattan and across different points in the Hudson and East Rivers. So going, mm. that sort of ferry boats. And do you know what they used to be called, these horse boats? Sort mm. of? No, a horse ferry. I mean, no, what's it, what do you call it? So they were called team boats. Team just sort of pun on steamboats. That's very Because good. they're very similar, but they use up but to sort of ferry. eight to 12 horses. I think the horse ferry is, is much better. So that's a thing, isn't it? But so the human ones didn't actually develop until the 1800s and not for really anything useful, but as a prison rehabilitation device for prisoners. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so what, to keep them, is it a sort of humiliation or is it just to keep them contained? It's for hard work, basically, hard yes. labour. So somebody called William Cubitt, yes. who the later... Architect. Architect, yeah, yeah, so he, he sort of oversaw the construction of the Crystal Palace. In 1818, he first designed the treadmill for humans and the most popular form of that was installed in Brixton prison so it was a really sort of wide wheel that could hold 24 prisoners side by side it had little steps so you would move and then the next sort of step would come along and then new people would join it so that you'd get a break when you got to the end so you moved along this and the, the wheel kept moving and was, and it pro was it just pointless or was it well so this one was actually also attached to a grinding corn grinding machine okay. so they were so it's dual functions basically you're grinding corn but actually the main reason is to keep them busy and in the british prison act every prisoner over 16 was who was sentenced to hard labor had to spend at least 3 months working on the treadmill 
So, but if you can send someone to hard labour, you then have a problem, which is giving them something to do which mm. constitutes hard mm. labour, right? The yeah. treadmill. This sort of became the solution to that almost. Um, Why would you say hard labour? So it wasn't just breaking labour, but it was decided that you would be morally improved or properly chastised yeah. by having an extra degree of pointless. That was the thing. Exactly. I, I remember reading about Nelson Mandela. He, was, he had to do hard labour on Robben Island. And this is a, such an extraordinary legacy of that terrible time for him that... He couldn't cry afterwards because he'd had so many little fragments of chip getting into his tear ducts that oh, he was God. unable to cry. Oh, Lost the power to cry. Yeah. So the treadmill was seen as the best preventative punishment because they thought that nobody exposed to that would reoffend because it was so awful. Well, Oscar Wilde trod the treadmill, didn't he? Yes, he did very famously. So Oscar Wilde was imprisoned in 1895 for gross indecency and had to work the treadmill as part of his punishment and wrote about it as well, I think. He also, or also, because obviously the, the first ones had them side by side, they then developed new designs where they were separated as well so that you couldn't chat amongst yourselves like hospital, and enjoy that. Like yeah. in the older prison chapels, you lived in a sort of, you went into it, but in a stall that was divided to stop prisoners from oh, communicating. I mean, it's interesting, so many of those initiatives were seen somehow as part of a new humane regime, yeah. but actually they were breathtakingly cruel, weren't they? Yeah, these were seen as actually more humane than other types of punishment at the time. Yeah. And obviously quite practical because you could, well, it started more as a work machine with sort of attached to corn mills or whatever, but then it became more of a torture device. So it was that punishment in itself was seen as so useful and so sort of suitable for stopping people reoffending that I would prefer to be on a treadmill as a Ooh. punishment to wielding a pickaxe against Ooh. rocks. I'd rather break a rock. At least you'd be outside, I suppose. Well, also, it, just remind, it would remind me of the gym. <laughs> yes. Awful. But also, doesn't it make you think with all of this that you can do positively, if you take away the, the degradation and the punishment, positive energy coming from knees. And then when people run on the treadmill in the gym, it should be attached to something, you know. Yes. So you're, the energy you're yeah. expending should become something productive. Well, I think, now, for, did you know that in crematoria now, the heat generated by burning human remains goes to heat the building? So they recycle the heat. Thank goodness. Which is, of course, a very sensible thing very to do. Very sensible. It's slightly ghoulish. It is a bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's so odd, isn't it? I've, often when I'm looking at the gym and I really only look, I don't participate, and you see people, I think partly of the of the Victorian treadmill in a prison, but partly also of kind of medieval penance, except people are inflicting upon themselves this physically exhausting and pointless exercise, not for the good of their souls, but for the good of their bodies. But also serotonin. I mean, they're getting a kick from yeah. it mentally too. And you think people jumped off the treadmill at Brixton Nick, full of the joys of spring because they're <laughs> endorphins. Give me another half hour. <laughs> I think they were doing it for such a long time, so they had to do it for up to 10 hours a day in the summer and seven in the winter, okay. which is a little bit excessive, I think. So that's but that's because uh, of daylight, presumably, not because of the seasons. Presume so. I was also trying yeah. to work out why there was a yeah. difference between summer and winter. Exhausting. Ten hours climbing. Ten stairs. hours of just doing that, and so you'd have a twelve-minute rest. So on that original machine, at least, there was a twelve minutes rest per hour. Right. So it's not you know completely non-stop, but even so, that's absolutely ridiculous. So, but it was. I mean, these were going all the way through the the nineteenth century. Really, it was towards the end of the 19th century that new ideas about prison rehabilitation and it was generally thought, actually, this isn't such mm. a good thing. It's not really working and it's not a very humane way of doing things. So and it was... Was there a fitness aspect? I mean, obviously not consciously, but did Oscar Wilde come out 
sort of leaner and meaner or not. Killed him. It would have been pretty much leaner, yeah. but I think psychologically broken. Um, completely I mean, he died broken. In, he was forty. How, how long after he came out of prison did he die? Just a couple of years. He went to Paris. He, he died was broken. Yeah. yeah. He was broken by it, yeah. 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 It's a rather touching story of a uh, Another prisoner saying to him that he felt sorry for him because it was harder for people like him, I suppose, to come mm -hmm. from a privileged background to cope with that sort of thing. Imagine that, you know, you're an habitué of the Café Royal or mm. the mm -hmm. toast of town and all of a sudden you find yourself in some awful Victorian panopticon prison. Dreadful. I remember the, the, going around Dachau and they, they did a very good exhibition of some of the prisoners there, their lives before, and then what happened to them there. And there was a pair of Austrian princelings, and you saw them by their car before the war at the equivalent of Royal Ascot. And then the camp commander in Dachau had them in charge of chiseling out the loos, and that was quite a turnaround for them. Well, the Cultural Revolution, they loved, I mean, it was a thing, wasn't it, that it was people who had had what were seen as soft lives and occupations, perhaps they did, were sent to do the most backbreaking work, and also, mm. I'm sure it's backbreaking for anybody, not yes, just the people. Yes, exactly. Mm. Lives, yeah. I wouldn't have been very good at that. Hard labour wouldn't have worked for me. I'd rather have sewn a mailbag, wouldn't you? Yes, I think so. Hard labour, when it's designed to break you, I mean, it's it's not, there's no upside. And imagine waking up, you're absolutely destroyed one day, and then you wake up, it would be the mental torture as well as the physical of knowing that you're stuck in that rut. I suppose you just got through it, didn't you? Well, you don't really have a choice, I don't suppose. It's not really no. a, I think, I guess that's what we can't really understand, that there isn't. We saw you having a choice. There is something, there is a choice to attitude. I knew this farmer who died aged 99 and he had been a Japanese prisoner of war, captured at Singapore. And as a junior officer, he made all his men stand in a line every day to be inspected by him. He made them all shave, kept them alive. He bribed some of the Chinese slaves to bring an egg or whatever they could steal to keep his men alive. And he wrote them each an IOU and paid off every single IOU after the war when they came in from all over Southeast Asia. Wow. And he survived and he had a very high success rate among his men by just holding them together, really. Because their citizenship is not, it's trying not, I mean, because those systems are designed, aren't they? Foucault's written about this to humiliate and to require your abject submission. If you can, there's a part of yourself that you can preserve from that. Mm. Maybe that's the thing that. But haunting, he, he, for the rest of his life, this man remembered the horrors of it. And in particular, had a sort of rough shoot, but he wouldn't allow anyone to shoot a hare because a hare, when it's wounded, makes a terrible noise. And it was a noise he remembered a Chinese female slave making when she was caught smuggling and the Japanese crucified her. And it was unbearable. And it was an unbearable thing. And one of his friends once shot a hare and wounded it and he never spoke to him again. Goodness. I was thinking of, I remember going to a deathbed and uh, it was a chap who'd lived a very quiet life, apparently, but actually he'd been a medic in the Pacific, and he had been, he was 18, and he used to have to fly casualties from the Philippines, I think it was, to on the way to Australia, you know, in a Dakota with a bag of saline trying to keep people alive, being shot at, and he was taken prisoner, and he was in a Japanese prisoner war camp in the Philippines, and then in mainland Japan, and told, you know, stories that were unspeakable. And I uh, said, so after he died, I said to his sons, "Let's. what do you want to talk, say about that? And they knew nothing about it. Extraordinary. Because it was too awful, I think, he left Well, it. that's it. So the, I went to the farmer's funeral and the eulogy was given by his doctor who said he opened up to me in his final weeks about what happened there and I can't share any of it with any of you because it's too disgusting. Too awful. Well, you wonder, don't you, what you come out of Brixton Nick in 1890 and you've been brutalised. Yeah. 
and crippled and you know, whatever by that treatment, what was your life like after that? What record did you leave of it? Oh, it's completely unthinkable. I think we've fallen down a really big rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so slightly different. Hey, just to sort of get back to the back on the treadmill. Yes, back on the treadmill. <laughs> yeah, see what I did. Uh, how though? How do you go from there to the gym and to this being something really positive that you might get? So when, do you know how when how you? and when do you think do you know how that happens? Is it all sort of time muscle of Charles beach. Atlas and muscle <laughs> building and well, or? sort of. So calisthenics. Not quite. So the next really interesting step is that, well, actually the first patent for this as a training exercise machine is, is from 1911, so quite soon after. Mm-hmm. But then, oh, and there were some sort of, ex- one, a dog exercising device was patented in 1939 as oh. well. <laughs> quite sweet. But then it became developed for you testing patients' heart rhythms by doctors in the 1940s. So there's a cardiac stress test called the Bruce Protocol that was developed by somebody called Dr. Robert Bruce. So he was using the treadmill and getting the patients and then measuring their heart rate and sort of realising the impact it had on that. So it was used as a health device because obviously realising that impact that it has on the stress on the body. So it kind of started from there. And then then in the 1960s, there was an American mechanical engineer called William Staub who first patented this as a as a fitness machine so he developed the pacemaster 600 <laughs> yes we all want one of those and he was why 600 it's hard, i, I thought it? why do you start with 600 <laughs> as opposed to a thousand would be many yes. more but he he sort of he wanted to create something convenient for exercise avoid the danger of running on icy streets in new jersey where he was living yeah, but he also was um inspired by a book by another doctor called dr kenneth cooper who had looked at a lot of the health benefits and again the sort of testing training he was an army and air force doctor so he'd been training people and he wrote a book where he advocated for running eight minutes a day at least five times a week to keep you healthy and keep you fit i've got a question yeah so obviously physical training in the military has been a thing for a long time but when did people start doing it when they weren't in the military, when did it become a th- so? When did everyone start going to the gym? When everyone start running? It's such a characteristic thing of our time, isn't it? Everybody yeah. running. In. I guess people are when we become more sedentary as well. So there so a lot of this in some of these sort of pains, these machines that start developing in the twenties and thirties, like that dog exercising device. I think that's coming at a time where people have much more sedentary lifestyles. But maybe living in cities in flats. Living in cities in flats, apartments, so you can't, you don't necessarily have the opportunity. People yeah. working inside, and I think that surely must be where that comes from. The earliest vaguely modern person I've heard of who took this side of things very seriously was the Empress of Austria, Elizabeth, Cece. Yes, not in the running, but she did have a gymnastic instructor and she used to travel with weights and, you know, dumbbells equivalents and all that. She was a great beauty. She was considered the most beautiful woman in Europe. Didn't she have the tiniest waist? She did. She had an 18-inch waist. She used to sleep with raw veal on her face because she thought it was good for her complexion. I've done that, but only after a night out. (laughs) (laughs) And she wouldn't allow any photographs to be taken of her after, I think, 30 because she didn't want to be seen as ageing. So she took her physical appearance extremely seriously. So So that was, so she was exercising gym, not not running. So she was doing it to look good as opposed to... Yeah, to and she died fit. in the early 1900s. So, you know, she was doing this in the 1880s. It was, it was extraordinary, really. But was there some sort of field of study behind that? Or was it something... 
Was it? What do you keep? She had a strange diet too, sort of raw eggs and all that sort of thing. Oh, she but she was very, very vain, wasn't she? About totally vain. I mean, it was her thing, was her beauty, and that was it, really. And she, of course, was corseted, and the corsets delayed her death. That's they? right. She was stabbed on Lake, just off Lake Geneva. A, a man called an anarchist, which was a terrorist group, stabbed her. He was on the way to assassinate a German princeling, and he ran out of money on his tram was walking home and overheard someone saying, oh, look, there's the Empress of Austria. And he ran up and stabbed her. Nobody knew she'd been stabbed. She didn't feel it through the tightness of her corset. And he was just led away for thumping her. But when she blacked out while crossing Lake Geneva, her ladies-in-waiting released her corset and realised then that she was stabbed and she hemorrhaged on the lake. The effect of loosening her stays was to allow the blood to flow. Yeah, but she'd had it. I mean, they'd have to have undone it at some point. Gosh. There's a statue by Lake Geneva of her, actually. A disembodied voice has a fact for us, I think. Obviously, the term gymnasium is ancient Greek, where... It functioned as a training facility for competitors in, in public games. And Richard, you like this? Or they, athletes always competed nude. Thank you. Um, no problem. But actually, the first health club opened in Oakland in California in 1939. But it wasn't until the late 70s, early 80s with the introduction of the running shoe from Nike and Jane Fonda's workout videos. And then fitness clubs began to open all across the United States in Which about 1983. Greatly to be regretted, I think, that we all have to be athletes now. I think you said, clo- I'm going to go clothed when we're <laughs> doing gymnastics. I think it's a shame. Mm. I think we should be allowed to just not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, just sit around and not do We'll sports. talk about stuff. I have something to eat or, you know, this... I was thinking I, of Winston Churchill. You know, how did he live such a great age when severely overweight and drunk smoking, most of the day? Drunk all day, smoking like a chimney. Yeah. So, Kat, what was your favourite fact that you discovered while looking into this? So actually, one of my facts was going to be Oscar Wilde, but that's already been stolen from me. So thanks, thanks. (laughs) That's all. My other fact that I quite liked was a person who I can completely understand liked the treadmill was Mr. Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. He talks about what a useful thing the treadmill as a punishment device was. So quite like that fact. So the hardness of that would appeal to a hard-hearted. Exactly. That's exactly it. I don't know if I want to go running on a treadmill now or not, really. I feel a bit sort of in two minds about it. Actually, I prefer running outside, I have to say. But do you run? Do you use a treadmill? I don't. I run outside. Do you use a treadmill? I don't. I use a cross trainer. Is that the thing with the yeah. handles? Yeah, which is much easier on the joints. Oh, is it? So for a gentleman of a certain age? gentleman of a certain age and wanting to protect his knees might go for the cross trainer. How long do you do on it? Well, so I do an hour twice a week with a personal trainer. And I do five minutes as a warm-up on the cross-trainer each time. To warm-up? Yeah. How Get far do you going. run, Kat? So I normally do 5Ks on a Saturday. I do park runs, oh, which is park the runs. best thing. Yeah. I absolutely would recommend it. You can walk them if I you made want. my knees, I'm afraid. You can walk. You, can walk. you don't actually House have to run. You can, you can walk. But yeah, so I do 5Ks normally on a Saturday. Oh. So... But I think, Richard, I mean, I don't know, Park Run, it's for everyone, isn't it? I mean, you it don't is. have to be sprinting. They always say right. that, don't they? But, <laughs> no, but the, it I've really, really much, is. I've spent too many hours <laughs> of my life being the last person picked for football to go through that <laughs> humiliation again. I can see the disembodied Does, voice smiling. <laughs> cold-hearted <laughs> mirth at the thought of that. No, it's an absolute <laughs> wonderful invention, actually, getting so many people out all the way around the world. I want there to be a breakthrough when all of a sudden some reputable scientist will conclusively prove that exercise is bad for you. <laughs> it is bad for you. I know a guy, right, who uh, is obsessed about body fat and was a professional athlete, friend of mine, 
and uh, an international athlete, in fact, and he got down to 7% body fat. And then he got down to 5%. By the time he got there, it started to be bad for him because it affected his capacity for the body to mend itself. Mm. And his immune system began to crash. So exercise can be bad for you. This is not. I think there might be a sort of mid stage in between here, Richard, but that's just. can be bad for you, Kat. I'm not saying it is. Fine. (laughs) All right. Fine. But we won't give you a treadmill. We can stay off that. Thank you. So I think that leaves us with a final stage where our disembodied voice, who's actually our producer, is going to make a decision again, completely undemocratically, to see who the winner is. And so, so far, we've got two wins for Charles, one for me. Uh, that would be zero. That would be zero for Richard. So, what's today's verdict? I'm sorry, Richard. It's cat. <gasps> yes! Yay! Cat, well done. <laughs> you can see that, that burden of sorrow is hanging heavily upon you. <laughs> Disembodied voice. He just you know, wants you to work harder next week to make I, sure that you... I care nothing for these trinkets and baubles, <laughs> these ribbons to stick in your coat. <laughs> so, that was brilliant. But before we go, we have to also reveal next week's topics yes so charles mm-hmm. you're going to be talking about literary festivals fabulous that's literary very nice festivals. i enjoy it. i've been on both sides of those and richard yes i think you will be talking about received pronunciation received pronunciation god blimey <laughs> <laughs> what about you Kat? so my rabbit hole to fall down is going to be what you need to relax for after the treadmill which is the sauna or the sauna as it's oh. correctly Hold your fire, but I have finished saunered, complete with the birch twigs. Excellent. Well, in that case, we've got something to talk about next week. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. So thank you, my fellow rabbit holers. Thank you. Thank you. That was brilliant. And thank you all for listening. And if you're out there listening to us, please do leave us a review and let us know what rabbit holes you might like us to go down in future episodes. Yeah, can I just say, if anyone wants to maybe just raise a question about the marking of the episode so far that might be the forum to do well, it we've already said this is meant to be undemocratic so Perhaps hashtag injustice would be one <laughs> I love the fact you don't care and just let it go yeah, yeah. he's so you know humble me. and so <laughs> easy going so in the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast yes so goodbye bye bye, bye.